Welcome back to The Word is Resistance. Who are we meant to be to each other? What do the scriptures stories have to say about that in ways that can support us in shaping a more just, anti-racist, compassionate future out of this pandemic? What is the pandemic revealing that we can learn from? What is the gospel word for white Christians in this moment? These are the questions we are wrestling with this Easter season on The Word is Resistance. We are a podcast of surge faith, particularly designed for white Christians, white Christian folks talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy, including and especially in these unprecedented times of the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Margaret Ernst, and I'm honored to contribute again after a break in these past several months. We believe that white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting racism where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. You will hear a song throughout the podcast with the words, we are building up a new world. At my ordination last September, we closed out the service with singing this. I'll never forget what it was like to sing this a cappella alongside my people, everyone from my mother and partner to friends I have fought alongside to create sanctuary spaces safe from ice or in organizing campaigns for fair school funding, and even Nicola and Reverend Anne from this podcast. The song filled the church up to the rafters. Courage, sisters, don't get weary. Courage, people, don't get weary. The words are by the late Dr. Vincent Harding, and this version of the podcast is a live recording of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song. Courage, people. Don't get weary. The word is resistance. In the year that I've moved back to Philadelphia from Nashville, Tennessee, I've been relearning this place by walking almost every day in Cobbs Creek, just steps away from my house. Cobbs Creek winds from the southwest of the city where I live up to Upper Darby in several turns and tributaries. The creek has been medicine to me as I have moved through a year of grief and soul exhaustion after losing one of my parents very suddenly last spring. In this time of pandemic, more and more people and creatures have been out in these woods, where it seems like at all times of day, sun jumps off the leaves and shimmers on the water of the shallow creek. 
I've seen a great blue heron four times. Families and kids running through the woods, finding secret meadows, veering off the path, climbing through cleavers and wineberry and nettle to get close to the water. This was Lenape territory, sold to the wealthy English Quaker William Penn in 1682. I've also been relearning this place by reading history. There is a giant 700-page book I've been reading during the pandemic by a, that a friend gifted to me years ago. It's called Philadelphia, a 300-year history. This historical record is full of gaps, to say the least, but it is one of the most comprehensible historical reviews of the city, at least its settler history. William Penn is known for having acquired this land with some relative measure of fairness compared to the theft and brutality of other early colonies. He followed Lenape practices for gaining access to land, even though they had vastly different ideas of what that meant. Property was a European invention. Penn's sons, unfortunately, who took leadership of the colony after Penn's death, intentionally deceived the Lenape in 1737 to purchase more land westward. Penn founded Pennsylvania to be a place of religious freedom and liberty of conscience for religious groups like his, like his own, the Quakers. They had suffered from political repression and violence in Europe. He envisioned a place defined by brotherly love, where religious groups, in spite of their differences back home in Europe, could live peaceably and in harmony with each other. But Penn himself, along with other landholding Quakers, owned African people who were enslaved. And much of the economy of this early colony was fueled by depending on trade from English Quaker plantations in Barbados. Fellow Quakers, working class linen weavers living in Germantown, pointed out the hypocrisy of their peers profiting from slavery in a protest document in 1688. Here is liberty of conscience, conscience, they wrote, which is right and reasonable. Here ought to be, likewise, liberty of the body. Philadelphia, like the country it helped give birth to, has a long legacy of visions and intentions of liberty and the contradictions of those intentions. As I have rehearsed and reviewed my city's early colonial history, I've been struck by how the earliest pressure for freedom from British imperial control was rooted in a desire for economic freedom and driven by business interests, more than a vision of human liberation. The men who wrote the Declaration of Independence and Constitution were making audacious moves in their time to create a society that was freer than what they knew before, without monarchs, without a greater, and with a greater modicum of freedom of religion and thought. And yet American freedom rooted in economic growth has always been founded on the thingification of bodies of color, treating people of color as non-human and disposable. As Trump has encouraged protests, protests that liberate states from lockdown, and as states are opening up again from the pressure of these protests and business interests, even though public officials say it's unsafe 
I wonder, are our white American conceptions of freedom so convoluted, partly because our imagination about freedom has been so limited from the beginning? What kind of freedom is worth taking risks for, making sacrifices for, fighting for? Does our idea of freedom lie in getting stuff cheaply and easily or doing what we want, when we want, no matter the consequences, to whom? These wondering, wonderings have floated through me as I have walked through Cobbs Creek with the names of people who have died incarcerated of COVID-19 in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia on my mind. Like Rudolph Sutton, who died in the state prison at SEI Phoenix. He died from complications from coronavirus after serving 30 years for a crime he did not commit. And just before his death from the virus, his claim of wrongful imprisonment had finally come up for review, signaling the possibility of the release that his family had waited so long for. And like Yvonne Harris, who died in Riverside Correctional Facility in the northeast part of the city, she was a mother of three who was set to be released in August. Hundreds of people have participated in car protests in the past couple months with the hashtag free our people. There's another rally today where from a safe distance, we'll be celebrating the freedom of black mothers who have been bailed out by the community as part of black, the black mama's bailout, a nationwide black led initiative to help incarcerated black mothers go home around mother's day. Free them all. These are our cries for freedom for black and brown people from cages in prisons and detention centers, as we pray that judges and defense attorneys and ICE will act to let people go home so they can be safe from the virus. And because we need to live into a world in which we don't lock up our communities. And at the same time, protesters, mostly all white, have crowded into state capitals, including ours in Pennsylvania, many with guns, to call for states to end lockdown orders. 45 has encouraged the cries saying, liberate states from lockdown. The chasm between these ideas of what it means to be free and what we need to be freed from is devastating. And yet I know it comes from a deep and long history of confusing freedom with the market at working people's expense. As we see more and more people dying from the virus, the mainstream white American imagination about freedom is killing people. We need a better conversation about freedom to figure out who we are to each other, who we are to people of color in our communities, and who we are even to people across the globe. So if you are in a safe place to close your eyes, or if you're outside, to gaze upon something that brings you life. Breathe in. What does freedom mean to you? What does your experience of God tell you about what freedom is? What has the pandemic taught you about freedom? Who do you look to to learn about freedom?
What does freedom mean for who we are to each other? And how might you talk about this with white family members, church members, friends, co-workers, neighbors? Breathe out if you haven't already. I don't have the answers, but I invite you into these questions and this meditation, especially in moments when you feel restless during the pandemic. What might be possible if we dream new freedom dreams together? You're probably wondering when I'm going to talk about the lectionary. Don't be dismayed. Here we are. In Eastertide, we get a lot of stories from Acts. And for this Sunday, Paul is talking to a Gentile crowd, talking about who God is. Here's Acts 17, 22 through 31. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Please don't. <laughs> mad at me if I'm not saying it right. <laughs> Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found them, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since God, God's self gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, God made all nations who inhabit the whole earth, and a lot of the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for God and find God, though indeed God is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are God's offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we not ought to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now she commands all people everywhere to repent. Because God has fixed a day on which they will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom God has appointed, and of this she has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This speech Paul made to the crowd, likely Gentile philosopher types, is one of many, many theological discourses that happen in Acts. And we get insight into a movement and a thought movement that's figuring itself out. In Acts and throughout Paul's letters, there's a lot of debate over what followers of the way, this movement which deems Jesus to be Messiah, expect of Gentile converts. This speech deals not with circumcision or with questions about the law, but with the issues of idols and images of God. To understand why this would have been so offensive to Paul, 
we have to explore his world and background. In ancient Judaism and in Judaism today, worshiping images or idol images of God is a no-no. This is called idolatry. This is partly what made Judaism unique in the ancient world. And it often had political implications. Under the Roman Empire, Rome permitted people it conquered to continue their own local worship, their own local indigenous worship, as long as they also paid homage to Roman gods, the state religion. Jews refused to do this because of the ban on idolatry. So Paul's rejection of idols in his speech to the Athenians is consistent with his Jewish heritage. When Paul is speaking to this Gentile crowd in Athens, it feels like he's bringing them in and emphasizing this particular deep belief about God as not living in shrines and as a way into the story of God as a whole. He's an excellent speech maker, and thanks to the notes in my Jewish annotated New Testament, I know that Paul here is also drawing ideas from other Greco-Roman philosophy, guys like Seneca, Poseidonus, and Plutarch. I sound really smart now. But it's important to remember he's talking about the God of his Jewish ancestor, specifically when he talks about a creator who made the world and through, who through one ancestor made all nations. Fitting to him standing in this place of thought and dialogue, he deals with some big questions here. Who made us? Why are we here? And what does that mean for us? There's some really beautiful stuff here. I love line 27 when he says that God made us so that we might search for God and perhaps grope for God and find God, though indeed God is not far from each of us. It reminds me of a verse in the Quran that describes humans' relationship to God as being closer than the jugular vein, that God is, God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. And yet we search for the divine throughout our lives. God in which we have our very own being. So Paul is saying, since we are created by God, if we are God's offspring, children of God, we don't have to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of people. Or in other words, how could we be made by God if God were made by human hands? Paul goes on to make a claim about the resurrection of the dead and into the Christian belief of God moving through Jesus in particular ways. Many years later, Protestants, particularly radical Protestants, would take up some of this, these changed, same charges against idols as they destroyed Catholic icons, which they believed to be against the Bible's warnings against worshiping images of God. If I time-traveled, to place myself on the steps of the Areopagus with Paul and these philosopher dudes, I can imagine myself getting animated by this conversation. And it's because I wonder if we have often missed the forests for the trees in our conversations about false worship and shrines and idols. I might tell Paul about how 2,000 years later, we would be asking, we would, we would be asked to be making sacrifices at the shrine of our economy, sacrificing family members who are meat packers, sacrificing people working in jobs we call essential, but in which they are treated as expendable, sacrificing farm workers, sacrificing elders, 
sacrificing black and brown folks who were segregated for generations to the lowest rungs of the economy, sacrificing people with chronic illness. I would say to Paul on the steps, is this economy we've created not just an image of God where we engage in worshiping something that's not, that, that is made by human hands? Every time we choose the freedom of the market over the freedom, health, and flourishing of our bodies, all of our bodies, we are worshiping an economic system over the protection of God's created beings. I think of this when I see the bittersweet, complex statement of thanking frontline workers these days. Statements that we, we thank you for your sacrifices on bulletin boards above the highway. As someone who worked in a grocery store for a while, though I'm not working there during the pandemic, I can tell you that I nor my coworkers signed up to earn $7.25 an hour to risk our lives to a deadly virus. We worked there because we needed to. The reality of how particularly racialized our economic system is has been on full, blatant, naked display in the way the virus has impacted the U.S. I think about how farm workers have been demonized and called illegal and yet are essential to keeping food supplies and food chains open. If people can't be citizens, it creates a constant underclass of disposable labor of people whose lives and health don't matter, but whose work does. This is racial capitalism. What does that mean? Those are big words to describe something that's very real with impact on our bodies and lives. The black radical philosopher Cedric Robinson developed this phrase racial capitalism as a way of describing the whole history of modern capitalism. He wrote a book called Black Marxism, if you want to read up on that. And basically it means that racial categories are used as a way of getting free or cheap labor and free or cheap land to create capital. Racial capitalism is a God made by human hands that demands blood sacrifice. So if we, if we call ourselves as Christians, followers of the way that Paul talks about, we must reject its power. Paul Tillich, the Christian theologian, whose ideas shaped Dr. King, argued that capital as a form of money can take on the function of a secular religion, even a demonic one. In the U.S., we are in a wreckage of a history where we've worshipped this creation of wealth for white elites and often confused it with freedom. I think I'm feeling so heartbroken by that devastating political chasm between our rallies to free folks from prison and the rallies to free economies from lockdown, because I want to believe that we do have shared visions of freedom. What if we ask different questions of our white communities? Questions like Mama Ruby Sales' question, where does it hurt? And what do we dream of for our children? A formerly incarcerated woman who is a fellow of the People's Paper Co-op in Philadelphia wrote a poem about what freedom means to her. Freedom is watching children run and play in the parks with no worries, hearing their laughter and watching the smiles on their pretty faces, enjoying themselves without a care in the world. 
Freedom is a kind and caring word to one another. It means saying, I love you, I miss you, I need you. It's a mother holding her baby close to her breast, smiling. It means removing all the hurt and pain, breathing the fresh air, watching the moon and stars, as if it's the first time I've seen them. So again, I ask you, what is freedom? What kind of freedom does God make possible? When will we stop laying black lives, brown lives, poor lives at the altar for the sake of a freedom that doesn't bring life? What freedom does God invite us into that our worship of racial capitalism can't? And what does that mean? about who we are to each other. These are big questions that we can't carry each on our own, but that we can struggle with together, and that we must take alongside medicine of hope and courage, and belief in the resurrection of the dead, believing that we can make life and new things out of the death culture we find ourselves in, out of this dying way of living and being together. The science fiction writer Ursula K. Le Guin said, we live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. So to be audacious now is to remind ourselves that if a system like racial capitalism can be made by human hands, it also can be unmade. It's not God, after all. If it can be made holy, it can be unmade holy. Such a transformation is not through just changing our minds around and reading books, though that might help. As white folks, the worship of racial capitalism is not just in our minds, but in our muscle memories, literally woven into how our bodies move. This, our bodies, is, is the deepest site, after all, of worship. Resma Menachem calls white supremacy white body supremacy, because it's so hard to root out of our collective life because it's rooted in generations of white bodies trauma response, going all the way back to our countries of origin in Europe. I'll link to his book, My Grandmother's Hands, and his work at the Cultural Somatics Training Institute if you want to learn more about that and what it means for you in the show notes. Because turning away from the shrine of racial capitalism it's not just a work of our minds, but of our whole selves. This is also why taking action is so important. This is why I'm going to Riverside Correctional Facility, where Yvonne Harris died today, to show up for more Black mothers to be freed. I find taking action to be much more life-giving when I'm not alone, so I like to find opportunities where I know that I'll be with others. Here's four things that you and your community can do collectively alongside hundreds of other surge members across the country, especially in response to the murder of Ahmed Arbery in Georgia. 
you can push for the resignation of District Attorney George Ball and George Barnhill and Jackie Johnson. Sign this color of change petition, which highlights their gross negligence, or you can call Jackie Johnson's office at 912-554-7200. You can support Black-led and multiracial work led by people of color on the ground in Georgia to stop this legacy of violence and racism. This includes groups like Just Georgia, the Georgia NAACP, Women on the Rise, Black Voters Matter, New Georgia Project, Southerners on New Ground, and the Southern Center for Human Rights. You can sign up to participate in Surge's outreach calls with white voters in Georgia next Thursday on May 21st, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. You can sign up to collect your cousins, get updates with tools on how to engage in local and national elections as an anti-racist activist, and tools for how to call in your cousins and engage with other white folks around anti-racism. I love you and appreciate you for listening. I love you and appreciate you for jumping into this thinking and this work with me. We'd love to hear from you by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages. And we'd love to hear from you, especially from folks of color or non-Christian folks who may be checking us out to let us know how we're doing. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Search us on the word is resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to our podcasts. I want to also make a note that we're particularly excited about ways that you can donate in ways that give directly to partner organizations and to Surge Faith to keep this podcast going. This week, we want to highlight a giving platform that will give to Soul Force, which is doing incredible work against Christian supremacy. For me, as a white Christian, Soul Force's work is critical for liberating my own faith and tradition from the confines and suffocating ways that it has been employed to hurt people. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And a huge thank you, as always, to our sound editor, Maxwell Pearl. Thank you, Max. Blessings, all. Signing off. Rise, shine.